Heavenly Father, we hear these adjectives describing the character of of those who are not living in accordance with your will by the word. And I know that we cannot hear these without thinking, some of those are mine. We've gathered this here this morning, Lord, not to try to be better people. We've gathered to proclaim the great gospel message that Christ, who is perfect, did the work to make us a holy people. We ask, Father, for wisdom during these times of difficulty, and they are such. We look upon ourselves and the church and even the world and so much of what was just read in 2 Timothy 3 resonates. And yet we want to be a people truly set apart. We want as a church to have our lives reveal the great work of Christ upon the cross. Our flesh hates this. But your spirit that dwells in us is sufficient to transform us maybe even this day if you are willing to call us this day if you are willing out of our present darkness and into the glorious light of Christ. Father, we praise you now and will praise you forever for redeeming us from this list. We praise you for making us lovers of self into lovers of you. I ask now, Father, for even greater clarity to this end. Speak to us, Lord. Use my sinful tongue to proclaim your glory that your sheep gathered here this morning might see Christ more clearly, love him more dearly, and desire to follow him. I pray, Father, that you would bless not just Cambrian Park, but bless your churches here in the South Bay. Many of our brothers and sisters are gathered at this very moment. Many are singing and praying. Many are hearing the word proclaimed. Magnify yourself in redeeming many. We pray for all those who have gathered in like-minded churches that are unsaved. Maybe some here today that you would be pleased to save many. We long for revival in our hearts, Father, and yet we know that apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit and apart from our submitting to your word, this is not possible. But you are a God who does the impossible. So do that here. Do that in us. I pray that you would bless our ears to hear this morning what you have to say. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Good morning. If you have your Bible, please open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3 if you're not already there. Um, when you see the title of the passage being Times of Difficulty, I hope you don't go, ugh. I mean, I hope that's not the response. Um, if you've been here as we've been working through 2 Timothy, this is just a hard letter. I mean, there's a lot of real difficult teachings in here. But so important 
if we individually and collectively want to be a church that says, yes, we follow Christ. We want to submit to every jot and every tittle of His Word. We don't want to forsake pieces because it's not comfortable and not what the culture likes and maybe not what the church likes today. And so I pray that you haven't forsaken any of these teachings and I pray that by God's grace you've gone back over the past several weeks and reviewed your notes. You can listen to the sermons again online, but let's not miss some of the things that are taking place here. Super important for us. We're in chapter 3, so we're, we're knee-deep in 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul's in prison around 68 AD, and he's waiting his own death. And so many believe this is his last letter. Some say it's his last will and testament. So we want to hear again what Paul is saying to his beloved Timothy, his spiritual son, before he departs from this world. Timothy's in Ephesus trying to pastor a church. Things are difficult. Persecution's on the rise in the empire. And so Paul's in father mode. It's warning after warning after warning. And if you've been with us, you've heard all these warnings. And warnings are, they're just hard for us. Yeah. Our flesh does not like to be warned. If your flesh is like mine, when I'm warned, I want to do the very thing I was told do not do. Let, don't let that be your response. Hear these warnings in all the love they're bathed in. And then by God's grace say, okay, then I don't want to either if this is what God is saying. We've had several warnings thus far. Chapter 1, verse 13, Paul warned them to follow the pattern of sound doctrine. He said, stay in accordance with the word. In chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2, he warned us of the consequences of not guarding the good deposit in our heart, the gospel itself, of getting entangled. Remember, chapter 2, verse 4, and civilian affairs. He warned Timothy and the church not to quarrel about words, but to avoid irreverent babble. He warned them not to live as dishonorable vessels and gave descriptions of that. In chapter 2, and to flee from their youthful passions. And if you were here last week, he gave a very hard warning to the church. He said, there are some in the church that you need to disassociate with. Some in the church you need to separate from. The dishonorable vessels and those who claim Christ but have no power to live it out. He said, have nothing to do with their foolish, ignorant controversies. Now, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you might be asking, why all these warnings? Pastor, you said in chapter 2, verse 19, that this, the church, is God's firm foundation. I mean, if it cannot be shaken, that not even the gates of hell can prevail against God's church, then why all the warnings? Why do we need to warn something that's so secure? Jesus encouraged his disciples. In Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Why the word of encouragement and the warning out of the same mouth? Listen closely, saints. Jesus never said the building was going to be easy. He never said the building of his church on earth was going to be an easy project. He said quite the opposite. He said, if you're part of a true church, it's going to be really hard. And we have... We strangely have in the Western world this idea, that a false expectation of life in the church. It is not biblical. We have this idea that 
we're going to work hard, we're going to pursue Christ, we're going to preach and teach and live by the word, and there's going to be nothing but peace and harmony and tranquility in the body. You shake your head correctly, and you laugh correctly. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. It says if you're in a true church and you're battling for the gospel, you will be in a fight until you take your last breath. And if you're not in the fight, there's something wrong. Jesus warned the church of the time to come. Matthew 24, he said, Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. John the Apostle spoke of the Antichrist that would rise up. Antichrist, lower A, plural. Paul, Peter warned of the false prophets and teachers who would lead many astray. Jude's warning in Jude 12 is so striking. Listen to his words. These people are blemishes at your love feast. They're in the church. Eating with you without the slightest qualm, they are, he said, twice dead. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20, verses 30 and 31 said, From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then he says, Therefore, be alert. Be alert. Be alert to what? Be alert to those in the church taking communion, claiming Christ, but not walking in a manner pleasing to the Lord. He says, be on alert. Beware. Now, this is not those who are striving and struggling. This is the, these are those who are not striving and not struggling and making a mess of the community that God has gathered. And then he gives the imperative at the end of verse 5, which makes this entire sermon really hard. He says, avoid such people. Avoid them. He said, they're in the church. Yes. They're causing problems. Yes. Avoid them. How do we do that? That's the third point. I'll look at that in a minute. He's already instructed us in chapter 2, verse 21, to be separate from them. From whom? The dishonorable vessels. And then he adds in here in this last section, those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. They're not truly saved. So I want to, by God's grace, I want to expand on this teaching of avoidance. And I, I'm going to really need you to listen hard. These are teachings we don't want to hear. They're not terribly exciting. I'm not going to be magnifying Revelation 19 or 20 and 21 and talking about God and man dwelling together on the new earth. That's not from this passage. But it doesn't make this passage any less important for your ears. And I would say, in our cultural moment, so important for us. Because we're not getting this right. And I say we, Cambrian Park, and we collective the church. So let's see if we can draw from Scripture here and reset some things for ourselves. I want to expand on three things from this teaching to avoid such people. Number one, that the times of difficulty we must accept. These are times of difficulty. Number two, the characteristics of those being difficult. And number three, how do you do a gospel avoidance? I mean, what does this look like? So let's, let's jump in and by God's grace, glean God's word well. Let's divide it well. Let's eat it well. Number one, the times of difficulty we must expect. Look at verse one again. Paul to Peter to the church, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now that, that sounds bland, doesn't it? Times will be a little hard. Some good times, 
some not so good times. And besides, Pastor, he says the last days, and that's way in front of us, right? When are the last days? The last days, according to the scriptures, when Christ came the first time and when Christ comes the second time, everything in between. You say, well, wait a minute, that means these are the last days. Yes. These are difficult times. Yes. From the Apostle Peter's proclamation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit until Christ comes again in glory, it's going to be a fight in the church. Super hard at times. If you've been here long enough, you know of what I speak. Paul said, understand this. It's the same as Jesus used to say, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, Paul saying, you got to get this, church, or your expectation's going to be completely off. You're going to have this idea of the church in the world, striving for Christ, surrounded by sin, just being happy and joyful and just moving through easily. He says, that's not what's going to happen in these last days which is now. He's saying that your Christian character, now listen closely, he told us in verse 24, to be kind to everyone, to, be, to patiently endure evil. He told us in 25, to correct with gentleness. Your desire to love the unlovable, to be patient and gracious with everyone, to extend the hand of brother one to anyone who claims to be a Christian, can, listen, it can become destructive in the church if we are not discerning. Did you hear me? We cannot just assume that everyone who comes to a church and everyone who gets baptized and says, I know Christ, actually knows Christ. And so Paul is making some divisions here within the body of Christ or within the visible body of Christ. Look at verse 1 again. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, hard times, harsh times times, dangerous times inside the church. There'll be assaults on us inside the church. There'll be attacks from members inside the church. Spiritual warfare, he is saying, should be considered normal. It should be considered normal. And we as a body of believers say, well, if it's so hard, why is it so hard? He's saying because these are the last days and in the last days it's going to be difficult and therefore have an expectation of this. Understand this. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish like your pastor was for a long time. So here's a confession. Early in my pastorate for quite a few years, I don't think I understood or I believe this passage. I kept thinking that our church would get to a place and I, and I had the place in my mind that would just be a place of, of great unity and great peace, and we'd have the little issues, but we would just be there. And when we get close, there'd be those seasons, I'd be like, oh, this is it, we've arrived, we're here, we've made it. And before that foolish thought could solidify in my mind, we'd bom be bombarded again. There'd be financial struggles, there'd be infidelity in marriages. There'd be slander and lies coming from within. We'd have septic tank malfunctions. We'd have members leaving. The problem, though, wasn't anything we were doing. The problem was a false expectation of what we were supposed to be like. My problem was a false expectation of what the church was supposed to look like. So selfish. 
I wanted it to be peaceful for my own sake. Because that's easy for a pastor. When things are easy, well, it's easy. When things are hard, it's hard. People over the years have come and disgruntled at times, and they've said things like, you know, Pastor, CPBC is a long way from perfect. It's got some problems, you know. My answer is always the same. Of course, it's a church full of people. Not perfect people. It's a church full of people still sinful, in grace, battling for the sake of Christ. It's going to be hard. We're going to have problems. Not only because our own flesh is still fighting against the spirit that lives in us. But the Bible says we have an adversary. His name is Satan. And he comes along and he tries to entangle and ensnare God's children to do his will. We have our own flesh. We have Satan. The Bible says here in 2 Timothy 2 that we have dishonorable vessels. Christians who are neglecting to grow in the faith. And as a result, they're making a mess of things. And then as Paul alludes to here, we have false converts as well. And you would say, well, not in this church, not in this small church. Come on, let's not be foolish. Of course we do. People who proclaim Christ, covenant members, but have no power to live in light of Christ. So you have your own flesh, you have Satan, you have dishonorable vessels, and you have false converts all inside the church. And we think it's going to be easy. It's a foolish expectation. So when people would come and we'd have this dialogue and they'd say, you know, I'm going to move on to find another church. And some have, thinking that they're going to find that sweet spot that I was waiting for, that church that just gets along and everything's okay. Some actually do find that. Some go to churches where it's much quieter and there isn't any internal strife and there isn't that sense of accountability or responsibility or one anothering. And they say, you know, there, there are places like that. And there are, but they're not places who preach the word of God. They're not people who engage in covenant relationships. They're not people who say, they're not churches who say, we're going to love one another when it's hard and when it's easy. And we're going to come alongside each other and we're going to work this out together. In these churches where there is no true gospel preaching, no pastoral oversight, no discipleship, no church discipline. If you leave here and find a place like that and it is quiet, you need to leave that place because it's not a church of God according to this passage. If there aren't times of difficulty in the church, then it's not a church. Not a church. Others have moved on to like-minded churches. And they realize it's hard here too. So they leave that place for another church. And they say it's hard here too. Every two to three years. Church hopping, church hopping, church hopping. Why? False expectations. They go to another true church and they're going to find difficulties in these last days. Because that's what Paul tells us. That's what the word of God says. Last days, times will be difficult always raging, always fighting until Christ comes again. How many of you want to leave? (laughs) I am very thankful. Some of you have stayed the course for many years. Some of you have said, we are going to stand and protect the word of God and the purity of the church, and we will do that. Whether it's 550 or 500, we will do that. And I praise God for you. 
you encourage me like you have no idea. Some of you say, I won't leave. I won't look for the easy road. I won't go to a church where the gospel's watered down, where there's no accountability. I won't do that. I'm going to stay the course. You've said, I'm going to be a faithful soldier. And faithful soldiers expect to fight. And faithful soldiers fight well. And so, if you are one of those, then praise God that you've done the great work these many years. The question I want to ask, though, is why is it so hard? Why, Why can't it be, why can't we be that church that I had in my mind early on? Why can't we be like that? Why can't we all just get along? Why does it have to be arguing and fighting and all the tension that comes along with it? Second point, the characteristics of those being difficult. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says, understand this, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you that in the last days there will come difficult times, verse 2, for people will be, and you can stop right there, because there you have your answer. People will be a problem. People will be the problem. In verses 2 through 4, Paul gives a list of the worst possible characteristics of the human heart. And he says they're all in the church. They're here in the pews. I mean, we re- you heard two and four being read, and you're like, oh, that's, yeah, that's those guys out there. He's talking about the church. He's talking to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus. The difficult times we experience in this church and the difficult times experienced throughout the church throughout history have been a result of people. All people to a degree, but some people in particular that Paul's identifying here, still living like the world lives. And that means that when we struggle and we try to point fingers at financial difficulties, property issues, when we say, you know what, if we had better programs, or if we could just keep these facilities up a little bit better, when we try to latch on to polity, congregation, elder-led ministries, we miss what Paul is saying here. He's saying the strife and the difficulties is a result of the people in the church. Some dishonorable vessels who know Christ but are not pursuing him and making a mess of things, and Paul says, and some who are not Christians at all. Becoming disruptive on the inside, causing many to stumble, causing some to leave, and causing us to be less effective as a body of believers. Now, before I look at these 18 characteristics, and I I will not do them in detail, so do not gasp for air, um, I will talk to them briefly. I want to show you the bookends because they are extraordinary. Look at verse 2. He says, For people will be people right? That's the difficulties, the times of difficulties in the church. People will be lovers of self. Look at the end of verse 4 now. Rather than what? Rather than lovers of God. And there's your bookends. And that's the foundation of the problem. Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. So the heart of the problem in the church, it is people. And the heart of the problem with people is a love for God or a love for themselves. If it's a love for God, there's less strife. If it's a love for self, there is much strife. 
Christ said in Matthew 6.21, for where your heart is, you memorize this, what? There your treasure will be also. So where's your heart? If it's all about you, if it's loving you and caring for you and ministering to you and you're inside the church, what role do you think you will play? Will you be part of the solution of the gospel or will you be part of the problem? If God has captivated your heart, I mean really captivated, and Christ is yours, and you are his, and you sing these songs, and as you're singing, you say to yourself, Pastor, you need to sit down because I have a sermon on my heart. Those last two songs we did, you should be ready to preach. If he's got you, then your love for him will be first, and your love for others will be just that, a neighbor you want to pour out in that second commandment to love as you will love yourself. But if your heart is still enthralled with you, I mean, you've brought God into the equation and you like a little bit of Christ and a little bit of this, but not too much. If you still love self most, then whether you understand it or not, maybe unconsciously you are part of a problem in the church. Because if we are lovers of self, we don't relate well to others, do we? The gathering of God's children is a common unity, a community of believers. But if you're still about you, then when you come into community and it's only about your desires, then there will be problems. Self-lovers can only relate in a self-glorifying way. They cannot die to themselves. They cannot give freely. They cannot sacrifice radically. Because self-love is self-consuming, self-protective, and it relates to people for a distinct purpose, and that is to rise up themselves, to raise up, to take advantage and to manipulate others, to get ahead. So the very heart of the problem is a relational problem. The very heart of the problem of the difficulties in these last days is the problem of love. We're not loving rightly, and we're not loving well. Strained relationships because self-love is supreme. A few years ago, we had a, a family of six that would regularly come into the worship service very late, sometimes halfway through the sermon. That's a small church. And they would come in, and they would file in right here in the front, about halfway through. And after, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight weeks, some of the members got really upset. and said, you know, you, you guys got to do something. Talk to them. Please, sit down. I mean, it's been very disruptive. So we asked to meet. And we explained why we wanted to meet. This family became defensive, belligerent, and threatened to sue the church over a dialogue we never even had. What was the problem? Faulty alarm clocks? Inability to discipline themselves to get the church on time? Of course not. The problem was self-love. The problem was saying we love ourselves more than we love God, honoring him on the Lord's day. We love ourselves more than we love our brothers and sisters and knowing that we're distracting them every time we come in late. And please don't take this the wrong way. I do love punctuality, but the problem was a heart issue. They were missing their love for God, which means they missed their love for one another. This list of characteristics that I want to go through very briefly, Paul says, these are people that we need to avoid in the church. He ends verse 5 with avoid such people based upon the list of verses 2 through 4. So 
Underneath this all is a self-love instead of a love for God. And a self-love wrecks relationships. A love for God restores relationships. So as you listen to these, I want you to identify those areas in your life. But more importantly, I want you to be thinking, what relationships do I have? What intimate fellowships do I have with people that fall into this list? Because if I do have those, Paul says I need to start avoiding them. So let's do this very briefly. I want to just look at each one, and you can meditate on it, go back and study it yourselves. Self-lovers are first, he says, lovers of money, and it shouldn't shock us that that would be the second one in this line of thinking. Lovers of money, literally personal gain, especially in this time and age. Right? We know that with money comes freedom. We can buy what we want, we can eat what we want, we can have the medicine that we long for, we can go on those vacations. We become more self-reliant, independent, which is contrary to communal life. Third one is proud, someone who likes to boast. That literally comes from a Greek word that means a wandering vagabond. You know what that means? A a wanderer who goes from place to place. You know why? Because if you boast long enough in a place and people realize you're a charlatan, you got to find new, naive ears to talk to. Proud, arrogant, back-to-back, literally means to hyper-shine for your own glory, to let people know how good you are. Abusive. You know this Greek word. Blasphemos. To blasphemy. So when you think of abusive, I want you to think of the tongue slandering, lying, deceiving with their lips. Disobedient to parents. That's an easy one. We got that. Ungrateful. Lacking the grace that has been poured out in our lives in all ways. Unholy is a disregard for the sacred things, a disrespecting of God and His Word. Heartless, devoid of affection. Lovers of self first. Unappeasable. People you just can't resolve anything with. You can't make peace with. Slanderous. You know this one also. Diabolos, where we get the word diabolic or devil. Someone who criticizes others to hurt them, slanderous, without self-control, oftentimes with the tongue, brutal, fierce or untamed, not loving good. That's an active opponent of God and his goodness. Treacherous is what the ESV renders. I don't like that, actually. It literally means traitor or betrayer. Think of Judas when you hear treacherous. Reckless, impulsive, and rash, in decisions and with words. Swollen with conceit. This is my favorite. It literally means to blow smoke. And there's a phrase that I will not utter from the pulpit, but many of you know it. To blow smoke is to make something cloudy so the person that's swollen with conceit doesn't see themselves clearly. They don't see themselves as they ought. They see themselves as more than they truly are. And lastly, before lovers of God, you have lovers of pleasure. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Pleasure seeking rather than God seeking. And you get to that list and you say to yourself, that's brutal. I mean, that is a brutal list. And I pray to God revealing as well. If I I was going through it, you were saying to yourself, you know, Pastor, I struggle with some of these. Some of these are on my list. I I know that I can be proud and abusive at times with my tongue. 
I know how ungrateful and unappeasable my heart can be. I know how slanderous and out of control my words can be. I know that at times I'm swollen with conceit. You might be saying to yourself, am I the person that should be avoided? Based upon this list, am I the dishonorable vessel? Am I the one filled with self-love? My answer to you is maybe. Maybe you are. If you are, by God's grace, you should repent now of that. But simply because you identify some of the characteristics of self-love does not make you a dishonorable vessel or a false believer. I want to be really careful with this. Because as I read through this passage, I see me. Each of us can probably identify with several, if not all of these, at some point in our lives. So the question is not this. Do I or they, people that we see, exhibit any of these characteristics? The answer, of course, is yes. In fact, if you say no, then the answer is absolutely yes. If you say, no, that's not me, but I know plenty like it, then I would argue that you are proud, arrogant, and swollen with conceit. A lot of smoke being blown. 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the question is not, do I possess any of these self-loving characteristics? The question is this. Now listen, listen. Because you need to identify yourself in Christ and you need to see others well. Am I bound by them? Do they define me as a person? Am I a slave to them because I have never ever been set free in Christ? When brought to my attention... How do I respond? When someone comes to me and says, Brother, you are full of smoke. How do I hear that? Am I humble? Am I broken? And do I seek repentance and forgiveness? Or do I fight back? Does pride and arrogance swell up in me? Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, Listen with all your might. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, not bound by these characteristics, But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, Paul says. So I say, Paul, to the church in Galatia, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, past tense, the flesh with his passions and desires. You are dead to that person. Are you growing in righteousness or unrighteousness? That's one or the other. As you continue to profess Christ and faith in Christ, are you becoming more like the self-lover in verses 2 through 4 or more like the lover of God in Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 24? Most of you know these verses, but you gloss by them too quickly. Ask again, Is this me in Christ? Do I walk by the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy, which is peace and patience, which is kindness and goodness and faithfulness? Do I live by gentleness and self-control? I know, Paul says, against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, with his passions and his desires. Where are you, saints? 
Where are those you're closest to in the church, saints? This is a call not only to self-examination, it is an examination of our relationships in the body of Christ. Those that you spend a lot of time with, when you read this list, is that characteristic of them? Do you find them growing more in their love for themselves or their love for God? Or do their lives look like a Galatian 5 fruit of the Spirit? I'm not talking perfection. I'm talking trajectory here. Every single one of us is infinitely flawed. But are you growing in Christ? Is your love for God increasing? Do you find yourself drawn to the Word, increased in prayer, fulfilled by a glorious fellowship of brothers and sisters? Is that happening in your life? Or... When you spend time with brothers and sisters in the body, do you find yourself reverting back to your flesh? Do you find yourself becoming more worldly, more arrogant? I was listening to a dialogue between two brothers, both proclaiming Christ, both know Christ. One was bragging. He was blowing himself up. He was swollen with conceit. And as I listened to him go on and on and on, this other one tried to rise up to meet him. And his speech became arrogant. And then this one got worse. And I thought, what are we doing? This is fleshly dialogue. This is irreverent babble. Discerning these things about ourselves. And Paul says discerning these things about others is important because the imperative, the command at the end of verse 5 is impossible unless you know who such people are. The end of verse 5, he says, avoid such people. So we've seen, number one, to expect difficult times. Are you there with me? Number two, identify the characteristics of those being difficult. And number three, a gospel avoidance. I want to end the sermon by asking, well, how do we do this? If I've identified maybe a dishonorable vessel or maybe a person who professes Christ but denies his power because they don't have it, am I not to shake their hand? Am I not to say hello? Am I to lock the doors so you can't come in? What does it mean? What is this gospel avoidance? Third point. I pray you're still with me. Paul's punctuation mark at the end of verse, in verse 5, listen, of lovers of self is this. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And now we're into the category, not of the dishonorable vessel, but we're in the category of the charlatan, the fakes. Those in the church who have never truly been saved, they have all the trappings of Christianity. They say the right phrases. They sing all the same songs. Yes, they eat at the feast, but they've never been saved by grace, and therefore they are, according to Paul, powerless to live a holy life. Titus chapter 1.16, he said, They claim to know God, Paul says, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. In other words, they claim to know God. They've likely been baptized. They likely own an, an ESV, a Reformed Study Bible. They attend church. They receive communion. Maybe they even participate in a self-glorifying ministry. Paul says here, they've been captured by the devil to do his will. They do not do good, but much harm. And in order to submit to 
avoiding such people, we must be able to see them in the church during these difficult times. Or we will not be able to battle as good soldiers. So, if we start back inside, when we think of the true enemies of the church not being outside but inside, those who deny the power of Christ, we must remember that this warfare is spiritual and it is subtle. No one comes in with a sign saying, Dishonorable vessel, I'm here. No one comes in and says, I profess Christ, but I have no power to live it out. Everyone says the same thing, do we not? The type of warfare in these last days are like that of Satan who masquerades as what? An angel of light. An angel of light. Satan doesn't sit by idly watching God's church thrive. He's doing everything in his power at this moment to ensure that every true church stumbles, struggles, not only by tempting some true believers to become dishonorable vessels, but by bringing false converts into our midst, bringing people here who are really not serious about Christ, who are not terribly concerned about knowing and submitting the word, bringing people into our midst who are self-lovers, not lovers of God. And when they come in, the self-lover is contrary to community. Remember, as people born again, the first and greatest commandment is to what? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's first. And the second is like it, to love one another as ourselves. Self-lovers cannot do that. Self-lovers can only make a mess of things. 1 5, avoid such people. Again, those are very, very hard words. Avoid such people. It's in the present tense. It's a present tense imperative. You can read it like this. Keep on avoiding such people. Keep on turning away. Continuously keep a distance from the self-lovers who are amongst you. Those whose life and practice do not align with the Word of God. So again, I need to repeat this. We're not talking about individuals who have isolated incidences, who struggle of sin and then repent. We're talking about character. We're talking about people over a period of time that you are seeing. Does the truth of God that a brother professes with his mouth, listen, husbands, If a brother professes with his mouth, Ephesians 5, I'm going to love my wife as Christ loves the church, and then he goes home and he's abusive with his wife, verbally abusive, emotionally abusive, and God forbid, physically abusive. What does that tell you if he has been confronted and he continues? If a sister in Christ says, I'm going to pursue righteousness, faith, and love and peace in the context of community, just like the pastor pastor preached, And yet, all you see is her being entangled in worldly affairs. Your conversations with her are about clothes and hair and makeup and entertainment and work and not Christ and the gospel and the glory of God through his church. Do you have a brother that affirms covenant community relationship? Hebrews 10.25, not to forsake the gathering of the saints. Do you have a brother who says that with their mouth and then there's never here? 
Do you have a sister who agrees that Christians should control their tongues and yet every time she speaks, she's engaged in gossip and slander? It is subtle, my beloved. We all say the same thing. We all read the same Bible. We all testify to the same church covenant. We've had visitors come and they look at websites you see, you know, I looked at 10 different websites, and they all affirm the same thing. Well, of course we do. But when we get to know people, do the words and do the truth of God align with their life? Not perfection, but trajectory. This we must see. Secondly, you must ask yourself, does your brother or sister hold faithfully to the word of God, unwaveringly to the word of God, to know it and believe it and submit to it? Or are they quick to dismiss it? I don't like those passages. I'll hold on to these. It's the whole counsel of God. Are they quick to twist certain passages to fit their circumstances? Do they acknowledge certain passages passingly because they're hard? Like 2 Timothy chapter 3. You're telling me to do some avoiding here, and I'm not going to, because I don't think that's Christian love. And when you say that, you're saying you know love better than God does, because this is his word. Do they acknowledge certain passages passingly, such as avoiding irreverent babble and then engaging in it, denouncing pride and then being proud themselves? Hearing Jesus say we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and think that he wasn't being serious or literal. When the people that you spend time with open their mouths, are they speaking the truth of God? Does the word of God come out a lot? Or do you hear more about their opinions, their preference, their feelings, and their experiences? Is what they say often contrary to Scripture? Paul says, listen, avoid such people. What does this look like? I mean, how do we not become a church that becomes clicky and divisive? How do we hold on to the gospel of grace and a radical love and simultaneously submit to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5? How do I avoid people without being unloving? I mean, after all, I know what Christ did for us. You know what he did for you. Christ came to earth and he became a man not to avoid us. He came to earth and became a man to invade us to overcome us, and to create a radical intimacy with us. The Bible says that he came and he, and he died a sinner's death that he might make us one with him and the Father. That's not avoidance. That's intervention and intimacy. So how do I do this? How do you do this? How do we rightly avoid certain people without violating the very tenets of the gospel of grace? Are you still with me? Okay, I see tired eyes. Just sit up a little bit. Get a little more oxygen going. It helps. First, do not prejudge. Okay, do not prejudge. When someone comes to the doors, do not judge them. We must, 1 Corinthians 13, hope all things. We must begin by giving people the benefit of the doubt, not without discernment, I mean, we want to look for signs of the Spirit of God if they're going to come into covenant community. We want to look for glaring sins, but let's not prejudge and precondemn in any capacity. 
super important. Number two, we've got to love them as Christ loves them. We have to love them as Christ loves us. This is non-negotiable. That means we come alongside of them. We get to know them. We pray with them. We care for them physically, emotionally, spiritually. We love them. We make real efforts at making a disciple. Number three, probably the part we miss, we constantly evaluate. We are called to examine ourselves daily. You must have right examination of your relationships as well, especially those you get really close to. You cannot go on autopilot. You cannot say to yourself, well, he's a Christian. She made a profession of faith. I was at his baptism. She's been a member 30 years. You cannot do that. In your relationships, especially those you're close with, you must be in constant evaluation, loving them rightly. Is your time together profitable or unprofitable? When you spend time with them, are you drawn closer to Christ or pulled away? Are you more other-centered or self-centered? When you're having the coffees and the lunches and the dinners and the fellowship meals after church, do they draw you into the love of Christ and the power of the gospel? Or do they make you a greater self-lover? Paul says if they do the latter, then you've got to avoid them. That doesn't mean being rude. It doesn't. It doesn't mean treating them unkindly. We've always been told to treat everyone with kindness. But it does mean that you will limit your intimacy with them. You will avoid, you will pull back, you will exchange in pleasantries. But if you continue in a relationship with a dishonorable vessel, or worse yet, someone who doesn't know Christ, then you should expect your walk to diminish as well. Lastly, you will keep your eyes open for change in their lives. You're going to watch them and pray that God does a mighty work through the Spirit. You'll pull back. You will. You must. You're to avoid such people but you will continue to pray for them. You will continue to ask God to make them alive, to set them free from being ensnared by the devil, to do his will, if unsaved, to save them. And then when you see the Spirit working, and you've seen this before, people come back, re-engage, make a disciple out of them, keeping the other things in right balance. When you see their form of godliness have power, then you want to make a disciple out of them. It's hard. This is a hard teaching. If we want to, as a body of believers, not make these difficult times more difficult, then we will rightly engage and relate to one another according to the word of God. Some of you are so kind and so filled with the love of Christ. I know what your heart is. Your heart's saying, no, I can fix them. I can help them. I know what pastor said here in verse 5 to avoid such people, and I know that's one, but I can do something. I have the power. I have the ability. That's self-glorifying. That is arrogant, and that is prideful. If there's one thing we know as a church over these many years, that you cannot change a heart that's been hardened by sin. Not even the church telling a brother or sister can change that. God must set them free. We saw that last week. 
So this is a call to a right appraisal of the times in which we live. Difficult times in the church. Get rid of the false expectation. And if we ever get to that point where things are really easy and good for a long time, you should leave. Number two, watch yourself and watch others lovingly. Have a right appraisal of yourself and others lovingly. And for those you identify in your life who are dishonorable vessels or unsaved souls, professing Christ but denying his power, avoid them. Avoid them. This call is a call to make ourselves ready as the bride of Christ. Revelation 19, 7 Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has what? Made herself ready. Are we doing that? Are we making ourselves ready? Are we ready for Christ to come today or tomorrow? Or are we entangled in relationships we ought not be? Are we not discerning well the times in which we live? I pray the former. Let's make ourselves ready. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are some of the harder teachings you've given us in this letter. To look at people that we we love so dearly in Christ, those who make a profession, those who have joined our covenant membership, and here you're telling us to avoid such people. Father, I ask that you would give us the wisdom to rely upon you and not ourselves. Father, help us not to be wise in our own mind thinking that these passages do not have to be submitted to in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would be gracious to help us during these difficult times, that as we find ourselves called to not only examine ourselves, but examine others and make decisions, that you would do that all bathed in the gospel. Keep us a loving church that strives for unity. Keep us a holy church that wants to magnify you with everything that we do. And simultaneously, Lord, make us wise. Make us wise. We don't want to continue to engage in relationships that are causing harm to your bride. Help us make ourselves ready, Lord, for your coming in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.